0: Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. All right, let's turn to the scriptures and I want to read two passages this morning and we'll link them together uh, as we go. Firstly, from Matthew 5 and verse 13, this is what Jesus uh, has to say. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if a salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying what happens... In communities like this, makes a difference not just for you and me, but actually for the world around us as well. Paul then picks up a similar theme in Galatians chapter 5, very well-known verses again. He says this, uh, starting in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. January 2009. A regular flight takes off from La Guardia Airport in the U.S., two minutes into the flight about the worst possible thing that can ever happen to an airline occurred. There was a bird strike. One bird in an airline engine is dangerous. A flock of birds in both engines can be catastrophic. Within moments of This airliner, flying into a flock of Canada geese, the pilot knew they were in real trouble. They had lost power in both engines. Thinking quickly, he realised there were three options for him at this point in time. First, he could see several small regional airports in the distance. The question was, could they make it to them in time? And if they couldn't, they were going to come down on heavily populated New York. Option number two, the Jersey Turnpike. Essentially a motorway. Middle of the afternoon. Cars going both ways. No chance to shut it. He literally had a matter of moments no good. Third option. The one that he wanted to take the least. The hudson River in temperatures outside of minus seven degrees. He knew it would take every single piece of skill to land the plane safely. The chances were that on impacting the water, it would go over and over, breaking up as it went, putting every one of 155 passengers into the Hudson. He banked left sharply, now with no power, and no ability for the hostesses at the back to speak to one another, and sought to glide down towards the water to catch it with the, with the flow of the water coming the other way. Every one of those passengers heard the words that you and I, that every one of us, hope we will never hear when boarding an aeroplane brace yourself for impact. The pilot landed the plane. He landed it so well on the river that one of the air hostesses said she thought they'd landed on a railway just without the landing gear having come out. Every one of the 155 passengers survived and the captain who had the wonderful name of Chesley Sullenberger III, Sully for short, was able to walk up and down the aisles on two occasions, checking that everybody was out, before joining them in one of the life dingers and taking his shirt off to give to somebody who was in danger of suffering from hypothermia. Wow. They called it the miracle on the Hudson. And I guess it was a miracle. If you think about it a little more deeply, It also required some pretty impressive technical skills from the pilot. Probably everyone was fortunate that he had a gliding license as well as a pilot's license to get that plane down. But I would suggest, if we think even more deeply, that we should be grateful for his ability, for his character. His ability not to panic his ability to think clearly and make good judgments, his determination that before he checked he was okay, that he was focused on his crew and his passengers, and even then to be ready to share the few pieces of clothing he had with others. It was, I would suggest, not just a miracle, but a time where character really made a difference. It's also, to me, a powerful picture of what Jesus is talking about in that first passage that we read, that character makes a difference, that character makes a difference not just in your and my life, but if the church will live as it should, it becomes a light to the world as well, and this morning's sermon is a little different from normal. I want to talk about why character matters in the church for the sake of the world. And having started by reading the scriptures, I now want to think for a while about character in a broader context. For those of you that love the scriptures, and I hope it's most of you here, don't worry, we will get back to the Bible. But warning, it will take a few minutes to do so. So here we go. After the Second World War, there were explosions in academia as what had previously been radical ideas became mainstream. A.J. Eyre at Oxford University put it like this, we should no longer use the word ought when talking about how we should live together in society. Because to use the word ought suggests that there's something or someone we're obliged to. And now we know that there is no one out there. There is no obligation. Here's the language that we should use, he suggested. I have a feeling that this is the right thing to do. So I'd like you to ignore your feelings and follow my feelings so that we can do it together. It wasn't long after that, Or, in fact, it was at a similar period that American psychologists like Carl Rogers, for those of you who know the discipline, who started saying, actually, the real problem is we're all too restricted. He said, you are essentially good. If you can throw off all restrictions and be yourself, the world will be a better place. It wasn't long before there was a book in the New York Times bestsellers list with the strap line, Thou shalt not fear your hidden impulses. So by the end of the 1950s, the world was prepared for the 1960s, though they didn't know what was coming. In the 1960s, schools started taking character, how to live well, off the curriculum. Quietly, silently, For the first time since schools were created, they stopped teaching how to live well. Why? Because no one knew what that meant anymore. In the universities, there was a specialisation of knowledge. Basically meant this. Historians learnt history. Scientists, they got good at science. Lawyers did law, and no one asked, should ethicists have something to say to everybody? And so we got to the point where morals and character and words like that started to sound a little quaint. They were the sort of words that my grandparents might have used. But we no longer had a way of talking about them. But I want to suggest that something at that point, rather more than simply a loss of vocabulary, that was at stake. Think about society like this. Three different spheres. The market. This is how we get wealthy. How society gets wealthy. It's governed by competition. And I think in that setting, that is a good thing. Then there's the state. The state is about, if the, if the market is about wealth, then the state is about power. It's about how we assort power, who we give it to, so that we can govern ourselves well. And then thirdly, the civil society. Civil society is things like the family and the church and voluntary organisations. That is not governed by competition or by power, it's actually governed by morality by how we will live together. It is in civil society that we stop asking the question about me, and we start to ask the question about us. Now the problem was, by the end of the 1960s, we were, on unch- we were in uncharted territory, for no civilization has lasted very long unless it's got an agreed set of principles by which to live. So we shrugged our shoulders. We said, you be you, I'll be me, and they'll be okay. I want to suggest the problem is it's not okay. On the rare occasions when Philip and my children as teenagers, and none of them are here today, so I can do this. When they were teenagers, on occasions they would stump up the stairs slam their bedroom door and throw themselves on the bed in a huff. They would then tell whichever of Philip I chose to pop in and see how they were doing. They would tell us, it doesn't matter how I'm acting right now, it doesn't affect anyone. And somehow they seemed oblivious to the effect that those emotions emanated through their bedroom door and to the furthest corners of our family home. And I used to tell them, I suspect to their exasperation, that no man or woman is an island. That how we live privately affects what others, how others live. As well as, it's not just how we live publicly. That whatever your actions are, they affect other people. And so we've been in uncharted territory. This is the first half of the view out there. Second half, and then you'll be pleased to know we'll get to the Bible. That has had a big effect on society. This loss of thinking about we or us, the lack of language to do so, that insistence on talking and thinking just about me, has had a whole set of consequences. Let me just suggest four. Number one, our ability to be together as a society. The buzzword is polarization. As social trust reduces, so do social skills. We don't talk about the fruit of the spirit as we did. We're no longer good at listening to one another. We're no good at disagreeing civilly with one another, of forgiving one another and being forgiven, of being a good neighbor. And consequently, families and friends have fallen out as they have sought to talk about whatever controversial issue you pick. I mean, which one should we take? Brexit? anti-racism, climate change, gender identity, or name a whole load more. Somehow we've forgotten that the person in front of us matters more than winning the conversation. And we've ended up polarised as a result. That's number one consequence of no longer thinking we but thinking me secondly a massive spike in anxiety and insecurity we're familiar with what psychologists call the grandiose narcissist you might not know the term but you're familiar this is the person who walks into the room and expects all the conversation to be aimed at them and all the conversation to be about them them. It's the grandiose narcissist. Everyone here has met one at least once. (laughs) But now psychologists say there is the rise of the vulnerable narcissist. The vulnerable narcissist is the person permanently hooked up to social media who's who's constantly asking the question what do others think of me? The result of course Is people whose emotions are in a wild set of flux as a result. Thirdly, anxiety, insecurity, polarisation. Thirdly, intimacy. We all know of the 1960s, even if not all of us were alive in the 1960s. It's a revolution. They said, a sexual revolution. Throw off all old ideas. Give up with all old obligations and loyalties. We can all have more sex than ever before with more people than ever before. That was essentially the message. 70 years ago now. 70 years. Probably about time. 60, 70 years. 60 years. So see, he tried to do the maths whilst he's preaching. (laughs) That is probably about time for us to stand back and make a bit of a judgement. How was it? Did it work out? Did it fulfill its promises? Well, interestingly now, 20-somethings in a world of Me Too, pornography at the click of a button, and hookup culture, are having less sex than ever before. And many are saying they either find it distasteful or are disinterested. Maybe there is something sacred about sex. Maybe there is something about the sort of boundaries that scripture suggests that might lead to all of us flourishing more as sexual beings if we were to take note of it. Polarisation, anxiety, insecurity, intimacy. You can see it's been a mess. Finally, I hope for the future. Now, if you think I was on delicate ground on the last one, I'm really going on delicate ground now. I hope for the future. We're having far fewer babies than ever before as a society. Which means that which has massive effects in 40 years' time, in terms of the workforce and all sorts of other elements to it. When my daughter, when one of, we have twin daughters, when Vicky, who regularly attends here, when Vicky told her twin that she was pregnant at the age of 27, Rebecca's comment was this. She said, this is the first conversation I've ever had about pregnancy with someone of my peer group, who is actually excited. This is the first positive conversation about pregnancy. She said, all the conversations I've had about pregnancy up until now about how not to get pregnant or what to do if you fear you have become pregnant. Here is what one 20-something writer said about parenthood. She said this, we are... She said, increasingly, we 20-somethings are seeing parenthood as restrictive, inconvenient, and somewhat irrational. And so I want to suggest that the loss of a sense of morality in the world has had massive consequences for us all. So, what should we as the church do about it? here's a few things that I'd like to suggest. The first thing is that we must talk about character, but we must do so with grace. If we set a high standard for each other or for mankind in general without grace, it becomes a crushing burden. The words be perfect as I am perfect without the next sentence and when you don't make it you are totally loved and accepted It's crushing. It is a burden that none of us can bear. And so we must combine the two. The wonderful thing about grace is it acknowledges that I'm fallen. It says that I've got a shadow side just like you have But grace also says we're so loved that Jesus will not leave us like that, but will draw us out of that. You find some communities that only emphasise grace. They're sort of... And they argue, you know, surely Christianity is about love. Love is all that matters. There was a book that was written years ago, some years ago now, called Love Wins. And that that was what it said. It basically said... Christianity is all about love. Love is all that matters. The problem is that when love is all that there is, when it's only grace and no character, then actually it becomes amorphous, vacuous. In the end, there's nothing there. Everything goes. Others say it's all about character. Sharpen up, you lot. And that becomes a horrible, pharisaical, arid desert, which is why the two go together, and why we have to contribute, live out life in a community which says, be perfect as I am perfect, and you're loved and delighted in even when we don't make it, even when we fail. In fact, the reality is, as Titus says, the that grace helps us say no to ungodliness if you want to grow in character do you know the best thing to focus on is actually i'm loved and when i realize i'm loved i want to become more like the one who loves me and so grace is essential in this whole process that's the first thing i want to suggest can i just ask how are you doing with grace personally Most of us are too tough rather than too lenient on ourselves. You know how to reign in life according to Paul? It's by receiving an abundance of grace. I mean, just stop and think about that for a moment. How good are you at receiving an abundance of grace for yourself? At the start of your day, at the end of a bad day, and at the end of a bad week. Paul says we reign in life when we receive an abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. We cannot talk about character unless we also talk about grace. Secondly, I want to encourage each of us as I speak to myself to grow in character. I was chatting about some of the content of what I've shared with you this morning with someone who used to work full-time for Christchurch London and is now doing a Master's in Sociology. She said this, she said, I've just, written, I've just read a book on our book reading list which argues that we're, we're only the products of our past, that our past shapes our brains, we then make the decisions out of our past, and consequently we're simply the products of whatever has happened to us before. We talked about it for a while. We agreed that what the Bible does is it reminds us that we have agency, that you have choice. Here's how my friend put it. She said, we're not responsible for what's happened to us in our past, but we are responsible for the way we respond to it in the present. I thought they were fantastic words. And I think that's at the heart of what the Bible has to say. We, of course, have got remarkable resources to draw on. The Sermon on the Mount, Paul's hymn on love in 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians, Fruit of the Spirit. Paul's reminder that you only develop good character if first you draw on the life of God within you. Consequently, people expect us to live good lives. As I heard one evangelist say, he'd taken a friend of his to a meeting where the evangelist was speaking And when they got in the car at the end of the evening, the friend said, he said, you say that Jesus died to save us from our sins. Which sins has he saved you from? Maybe I can ask you the same question. Which sins did you used to do that you don't do? Because Jesus has broken into your life. It's a challenging question. So I want to encourage you as I speak to myself, devote yourself to character. Devote yourself to prayer and scripture. And living in community, you know what living in community does? It makes you accountable. Because when we live closely with others, we firstly become aware of our shortcomings. And if they really love us, they'll just occasionally point them out as well. Next, Two more and we're done. Next, we are, as a community, to teach moral values to children and to others who are young in the faith. Now, how do you teach morality? You don't teach it in the same way that you teach maths and science. This is not primarily a head thing. You teach it like sports and crafts. In other words... We learn character in an environment where we can have a go, failing is okay, and there's some great role models to look up to. That's the way in which we do it. That's why our community groups actually are so important. Because it enables us and other settings to be able to live life together and draw from one another. Have you ever wondered why you find it easy to reproduce your parents' strengths but probably also find it easy to reproduce your parents' weaknesses? Exactly the same reason. That when we're in an environment with with people that we look up to, we find somehow it builds both into us. So let's create communities where we can choose to draw from this person on that strength. Just look at, wow, you've got such patience. How do I get some of that? Whatever it is. I want to encourage you to pursue godliness in an environment of grace. And finally, we are to be those as a community who start initiatives, organisations, and cultural goods with character at the heart of them. No doubt, I've not been to the uh, art exhibition that Natalie was talking about at East Endo. I've seen some footage of it and it looks fantastic. But no doubt some of those pieces of art would speak in that sort of way. The other day I had the privilege of going to speak to a firm of lawyers in the Midlands. A long, 20 years ago now, one of, the, one of, the, one of those lawyers was sitting in our living room as a young graduate. At the time, Philippa spoke to him and said she could see a sword in his hand, and she believed it was a sword of justice, and he was going to thrive as he spoke up on behalf of those in need in his professional life. And he is now the senior partner of one of the largest law firms in the Midlands, and they invited me to go and speak at their away day. Forty partners and other leaders, all committed to doing law well and to doing good at the same time. It felt a wonderful and powerful environment. And we could do with a whole load more of banks and PR agencies and artistic endeavours and so on and so on, which catch up something of that flavour of character. That just as we thought of a pilot who brought a plane into land because of character that had been built over years... So that we and many others would live in such a way, shine in the darkness in such a way that others, as Jesus said, see our good works and praise, not us, but our Father in heaven as a result. Let's have the band to come back, please. And let's stand and we'll pray together. Let's just take a moment, just take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for being with us. Thank you for that wonderful worship. Thank you for all the things that you're doing amongst us. Now we pray your presence continue, just rest on us. And I pray, Father, just for each of us that you would bring to mind the things that you want to speak to us about as individuals this morning. As we stand before God, I want to ask you a question. Is it the grace of God that you need to remember more than anything this morning? That you are loved, accepted, righteous? Is it a particular area of your life which you have ignored? Just as sometimes we can ignore the bills or not look at the bank account. So sometimes we can do the same with our character. What's the Spirit talking to you about? What's one specific thing that the Spirit is speaking to you about this morning? Father, we lift that thing to you. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you guide us by the Scriptures. We pray you'd shape us and make us to reflect you. You know we're broken. You know that we fall. You know that we're anything but perfect. But we thank you for your grace which loves us and delights in us and gives us your righteousness, and draws us and calls us to be like you. May we increasingly know that, in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.